0: Today's guest is a veteran of America's not-for-profit institutional theaters, having held key roles at Woolly Mammoth Theater Company in Washington, D.C., the Guthrie Theater and the Children's Theater Company, both in Minneapolis, and the Wilma Theater in Philadelphia. As a result of that resume, she is now the executive director of the Theater Communications Group, or TCG, the 50-year-old organization dedicated to strengthening, nurturing, and promoting professional not-for-profit American theater. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm looking forward to discussing the state of American theatre with Teresa Eyring.
1: Hi. Hi. It's great to be here.
0: Glad to have you. Um, Certainly we're not strangers, and we uh, we ply some of the same... Territory uh, in the work that our organizations do, but without going far beyond the mission statement that I included in the introduction into an endless description, can you just explain a little more about what the goals of TCG are for 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 our listeners?
1: Sure, I'd love to and really to talk about the story of TCG because it's just a, a fantastic story and in a way it's the story of our field. Um, TCG started in 1961, so we are going to be celebrating our 50th anniversary next year in, uh kicking off with our conference in Los Angeles, which is in June 2011. And when TCG began, uh, and we actually have the press release that went out from the Ford Foundation when it began, um, there were just a handful of resident theaters around the country, and they were started by people like Zelda Fitch, Handler, Zelda, Zelda and Tom. Um, they were... D- Dallas Theater Center, Margo Jones. You meant,
0: it's Arena Stage that you're speaking of with right. Zelda and Tom.
1: Arena Stage, which by the way just opened uh, a beautiful new facility. And these companies were started by visionary artists who really wanted to create theater in communities and relate to specific communities, and in some ways also escape the commercial pressures of New York. And TCG was founded when it was founded. Uh, Mac Lowry, who at the time was the head of the Ford Foundation could see that there were these companies that were geographically separate that were learning things that they really needed to start sharing with each other, how you build institutions, how you relate with communities, how you think about your programming. Um, And so he put some money towards the creation of a theater communications group so that these these geographically isolated organizations could actually, so their leaders could get on airplanes and fly to visit each other and see how the work was being done.
0: And we should say that this, So predated most of the regional theaters that we think of as the major institutions. Yes, there was Arena, there was Dallas Theater Center, Cleveland Playhouse is a very old organization, but places, so many of the places that we know didn't come into being until 63, 64, 65. 70s. Or even many of them seeded again by the Ford Foundation.
1: That's right. Well, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which also began in the 1960s. And, uh, so, so really the original goal was to put organizations in communication with each other so they could learn from each other. And in many ways that continues to be who we are as, as TCG. Um, we have professional development programs, we do research, we do a number of convenings to bring people together. Um, we know the field and we make sure that, uh, that we, we put aspiring theater practitioners together with people who can mentor them. And so it really is, in some ways, it's person-to-person information sharing, knowledge building, networking, and some tremendous collaborations come from that. Collaborations, knowledge development, um, you know, tremendous professionals. And during the, the 50 years of TCG, the field has also grown tremendously. You know, we started with maybe 10 or 12 member theaters, and today we have about 500, and the field is actually larger than the 500 member theaters of TCG, and there's just a, an enormous diversity in the field. Uh, and by the way, not many of our theaters are based in New York City and in New York State as well, so um, we are national, but we're based in New York, and um, you know, many of our-, our Well, what's
0: the are. balance? How much of the TCG membership is New York-based, roughly, percentage-wise?
1: Uh, just about – I would say about 10 to 15 percent.
0: Okay. So it's not – it doesn't predominate in no, any way. no. In talking about the 50 years, as you said, it is about communications within the field. Certainly, TCG initiated the Free Night of Theater program that That's many right. people may have heard of. But as an audience member – Are there other things that I would know about TCG? There's American Theater Magazine, which has been published now since I believe about 1985 –
1: uh, yeah. Well, what uh, it's it's interesting, you know, from that initial core of, of bringing people together, TCG began to invest in other kinds of uh, other kinds of programs and other other business areas. One of them that many many people remember is casting. TCG had a casting was essentially a casting agency for a time. It was a, a central casting the for yeah. the
0: not for profit theaters. Um,
1: so many 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 actors got their first jobs or or jobs they remember roles they remember um, through casting at TCG. We don't do that anymore. Um, But about uh, 25, 27 years into TCGs, or no, more like just about 25 years into our history, we launched a publishing business. Um, One of our very first books was Subscribe Now
0: by Danny Newman,
1: um, which is the book that became sort of the manual for how to develop subscription audience around the country, not just in theaters, but in orchestras and other performing arts as well. Um, so we started the book program and also American Theatre Magazine. So people do know us outside of the theater field from the books, and we publish uh, just some tremendous authors. Uh, really, when we commit to an author, we commit to an author, not to a playwright, not just to their to one particular play, but to a body of work. And um, so we have m- m- universities and just regular. American citizens who and and internationally as well who enjoy reading plays and enjoy learning about the theater through the magazine.
0: So let's take a moment and talk about you in relation to TCG. I read off some of the main theaters that that you worked at, but let's go a little further back. You went to Stanford and got a degree in international relations as an undergraduate? That's correct. So were you planning to work in theater, or or did you suddenly take a turn somewhere along the way?
1: I took a turn, but I, I, I had been in the arts through, throughout my youth. Um, and, and part of that is because, as with many individuals who, who become practitioners in theater or any art form, I was exposed at an early age um, by my parents, who were avid theatergoers, who loved classical music and contemporary music?
0: Growing up, where
1: in Baltimore? I grew up in Baltimore. Um, my family goes way back in Baltimore, and um, so I, I really I loved. In fact, they we had my parents had a tradition of bringing each of the, the kids to New York uh, when we turned ten, and we drive up from Baltimore and stay in a motel, a motor inn, <laughs> and see shows. And so I saw a couple of Broadway shows with my parents right around my 10th birthday, and we actually had a great story about going to a restaurant that used to be called the Forum of the Twelve Caesars. It's now called Maxwell's Steakhouse, and we were in there. We were the only persons there after – only people there after a production and uh, after a performance, and in comes another uh, couple of people sitting at another table, and my father says, oh, look, there's Orson Welles. (laughs) So – I got to meet Orson Welles, uh, and and get a signed menu from him, wow. which I still have. Which
0: is, I would is think, great.
1: yeah. So anyway, um, to your question though, I I really I I loved the arts, and I, but what happened is I started to uh, become very involved in the visual arts and painting, and I was interested in art history, and at the same time was developing an interest in international relations, intercultural communication. So I I was trying to figure out. You know how I could combine those interests in a future career, and when I was at Stanford, I hadn't really considered actually being a practitioner in the theater. I liked going, but i I wasn't thinking about being an actor or a producer. Um I started realizing that i I, I thought that the arts were were important to community life, and I wanted to see the arts as central in cities and and in people's lives generally and uh, I had the international relations degree underway and started talking with different people, getting advice on what direction I might take post college years. And someone said, "Have you ever taken any theater classes? You know, you should just take some theater classes, and and because you're interested in the arts, and and just try it." So I, I took a class from Martin Esslin, who taught at Stanford at the time, and uh, he taught theater history and he taught Brecht. <laughs> um, so I, I, I took classes from him. I took a couple of acting classes just for the fun of it, not because I wanted to act particularly. I thought there were people who could do a much better job of acting than I could. And and it really, you know, really grabbed my heart. So when I graduated, I, I was lucky to discover a thing called arts administration because for me that was a way that I could really have an impact on the success of the arts, the success of professional Arts organizations, and I also thought somewhere in my mind that it might allow me to bring in the international relations hook, which is something that also I continued to be of interest to me. And that's what ultimately took me to Washington D.C. I I, uh, I wanted to get back close. I, I wasn't going to stay on the West Coast. I wanted to go back home and be close to my family. But D.C. seemed like a great place to explore all of these interests. And and it turned out that being there made it possible for me to meet Howard Shawwitz at Woolly Mammoth. He's the artistic director. Um, at the time, that theater was very small and young. Uh, I think it was only a couple years old. And they were performing in the parish hall of a church. <laughs> but what I loved about Woolly Mammoth um, was that they were just exploring that the material that Howard was interested in and continues to be. is It's always, it's, it's cutting edge. Um, he was dealing with, he was always looking for Great scripts that had a kind of an, a, a twist on current events, or a twist on that really got people thinking about their lives and thinking about sort of the political environment that we're in. Um, and then doing just fantastic productions of of those, and but small. It was very intimate. Um, so I I worked for them for two and a half years and learned learned a lot.
0: As the director of development, I was, asking for money.
1: That's right. Yeah. Well, that was my way in because I liked writing, and I had written a couple grant proposals for another organization that were funded. And Howard, you know, I actually worked uh, for an organization called the World Hunger Education Service, um, which which does. Uh, Public Education on World Hunger Issues, and I and it was in the same building as Woolly yeah. Mammoth. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So I would chat with Howard when he was setting up the risers for the show that night or whatever. We'd chat, and he found out that I could write grant proposals and said, hey, do you want to work for us for a couple hours a week or a couple days a week? So that's how it happened, uh, but I learned – it, it was a, the company at the time, because everyone did everything pretty much. it was again, it was young, it was small. i learned I learned how to fundraise from him and from Linda Reinish, She was the managing director of Woolly Mammoth at the time. But I also learned so much more about theater and how it's produced and how seasons are selected and how you connect with a community and And it really got me jazzed. I, I realized at that point in time that I wanted to be a theater professional. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a development director for the rest of my life, though.
0: And so was that when you applied to the Yale School of Drama's arts management program?
1: Yes, that is when. And um, that that came about because uh, I, I started consulting with uh, a few people who have been in the field for a long time and just, you know, what's the best path for someone like me? I mean, what do you think about graduate school and – you know, so there I had some a number of people said, if you're going to do this, you should consider going to Yale, even though you'll need to focus on theater right away. In other words, it's not a general arts administration program it's a very practical theater administration program and um and what happened is that I then met some of the people who were running the program there were like Ben Mordecai who um has since passed away, but he was just an incredible teacher and mentor and understood the not-for-profit professional theater scene, but also was uh, very knowledgeable about commercial producing. He he produced, and he was August Wilson's main producer and collaborator and came up with just some fantastic ideas for how to, you know, like production sharing was one of uh, Ben Mordecai's one of the systems that he he really well together. Masterminded. Ben,
0: as the managing director of Yale Rep, which is part of being part, part of the drama school, and Lloyd Richards really pioneered the idea of taking shows and developing them through multiple productions at regional theaters, right? Not just an out of town tryout and go to Broadway.
1: That's right. And um, so that was that that was quite a system that was developed, and and uh, and then there was George White, and George was very interested in international theater. And so when I met George, I knew that if I could get into Yale between Ben and George, this was going to be a, a, a great experience. And so I went, uh, spent three years there. That's the length of the program. And then was recruited out of Yale to go to the Guthrie. And, you know, one of the things that I said uh, that I promised myself early on is that if I was going to stay in this business and really pursue a a career in not-for-profit theater management, that I wanted to work with artistic directors who were really pushing the envelope and who had big visions. And I've been so lucky in that way because, you know, Howard Schawitz was a great example of somebody with just a big vision. Um, And I went to the Guthrie where Garland Wright, well, Lloyd Richards was the artistic director of Yale when I was there. So I, I feel very fortunate to have spent years uh, there working with him. Uh, but then Garland Wright at the Guthrie, um, those were some very exciting years at the Guthrie uh, under Garland's leadership. Um, I had the chance to work side-by-side uh, side with Ed Martinson who was a very important mentor to me.
0: That was the executive director of the Guthrie? He was the executive yeah.
1: director of the Guthrie at the time and, uh, and then – the Wilma with Blanca and Yuri Ziska and the Children's Theater Company with Peter Brocious as the artistic director, just people who, um, you know, who are just very serious innovators and and very serious about finding, you know, the best possible in many cases really cutting edge work to bring to the audience.
0: Moving off of the direct biography, mm-hmm. let, me, let me ask you a question which relates – to my career, to your career, and to something that I hear about in the field. Even with programs like Yale and, frankly, many arts management programs around the country, theater management programs even, um, there's a rumbling about where are the next managers coming from? Where are the next executive directors coming from? Is there a difference between... New artistic leaders and their development, and what may come next, and the people who are going to be managing what have now become institutions, as you say, Wooly Mammoth was a few years old. Now you know we're we're twenty years beyond that. Many of the theaters that were new at the time when TCG was founded are forty and fifty years into their life. It's a very different place. Do you see in the field a challenge of who is really going to manage these organizations for the future?
1: I think there is just an enormous amount of talent in the field. There are many individuals who are studying uh, to become theater administrators or arts administrators. Uh, They are working in theaters now, today. Um, TCG actually has a program called the, the New Generations Program. And one of the elements of that is a, it's a grant-making program, actually, in partnership with the Duke Charitable Foundation and the Mellon Foundation. And what we do is we give 18-month grants to individuals who are seeking to become leaders in this field, either artistic or managing leaders. And we, we, they select partner organizations that they will work in for a period of time And be mentored by the leadership of of those organizations, and it really and those people go out and um, and get jobs and stay in the theater for the most part. Uh, I think you know one of the challenges, honestly, and this is something that I hear from some of the younger leaders or or what are sometimes referred to as the more emerging leaders. Some
0: Some people people don't like that word (laughs) emerging in any category. I've been
1: emerging for twenty five (laughs) years. People say. I think there is there is actually the question of, um, you know, where the next opportunity comes for them to be able to continue to develop over time so that when uh, the, the leadership of different institutions, when those positions open up, they'll be able to actually, you know, be qualified to be hired for those positions. Or when will a board of a major institution take a risk on someone who isn't as experienced as you know, somebody who's been running a theater already for 10 or 15 or 20 years. Um, And, you know, I think, so I guess my, uh, what I'm really saying to you is that I I think that there is no dearth of talent. I think that the opportunities for people to stay in the field and continue to hone their skills so that they can take jobs when they become available is potentially an issue. And then also just how many jobs are there really?
0: (laughs) Well, but you've spoken about a large number of theaters, but people sh- that are members of TCG, and as you say, that's not even the entirety of theater, not-for-profit theater in America, but many of those theaters are very small right. and don't necessarily provide the security for a large number of people to to make a living and make a life working right. at that. Um, so certainly that's a challenge.
1: Yeah, and I would say that when, when you... F- uh, there's so many. I, I think we have such. Uh, we have a field that is just so rich and diverse and exciting, and and in many ways growing even against the odds. Uh, but there are some complications <laughs> for people in it, and one of them is that you know, for artists, certainly there are the the, the number of artists who are seeking work, whether actors, playwrights directors or designers exceeds the number of jobs that there are, in some cases by a lot. <laughs> um, and I think that that's a little bit less the case when you're looking, at, you know, really examining the administrative side or the leadership um, side of the equation, but it still is an issue. I mean, there, there are fewer job opportunities than there are people interested in taking those jobs. And, you know, the exception would be, and I will just say to anybody who's interested in really uh, – developing a particular skill that could be utilized or a skill set that could be utilized across many kinds of organizations and many disciplines you know knowing knowing how to raise money is helpful and and there are often development jobs that are advertised and there aren't many qualified candidates for
0: mm-hmm. let's stay with the generational idea because we're talking about TCG at 50 and so many of the larger not-for-profit theaters are approaching 50th anniversaries. When we're looking at so many theaters dealing with generational change, and in fact, I believe we're about to see within the Lort community, which is mostly the largest theaters, the last of the founding artistic directors step down from their positions, that's David and Martin out at, at South Coast Rep. Is the direction of the field different now that it's in the second, third, fourth, fifth generation of artistic directors leading these institutions? Is it still going the same way that it began?
1: Uh, what a question. I think... I think it's changed because the, the work that's being done, the audiences who are attending the work, uh, the artists who are participating, um, because that they change in terms of the times and, and particular interests and what resonates uh, what's important to talk about in the theater. And so there's that. It's just what, what, what's important to the generation that's taking over each time. Um, or whoever's – and, and, it, and it, it exists on many levels because theater, for one thing, can be – it's very local, but it's also national. Um, it's local in the sense that it's made in a particular place with the artists and the and the, the funders and the, the audience members who are there, although in many cases they're bringing artists from other places. And so the work of particular theaters to some extent is shaped by the evolution of the community that they're in. Um, but then there are also just – I think there's some changes in the way that, let's say, the current generation uh, co- that, that may be coming in and, and running theaters and or, or thinking about within the next 10 years or so, wanting to, to lead a theater or have a high-level position in one of the institutional theaters, um, that there is, uh, for one thing, I think, a sense of, of the elimination of boundaries and silos in a certain kind of way so that people who – are pursuing an administrative career might be thinking about wanting to also be producing and maybe be crossing over onto the artistic side a bit more, so that there's not this really strict, you know, kind of firewall between. And and it's not that that exists now. The producerial, the relationship between artists and managers is is fairly fluid in many situations. But I think that there's there's a an increased consciousness about. The possibilities that exist when you think about theater more broadly, when you break down some of the boundaries that um, between, for instance, disciplines. So there, are, there are many artists who are coming in and thinking about the relationship between theater and music and and dance and opera and uh, you know how you fuse, how you create more fusion among art forms, or even going out of a strict. Arts silo and and connecting with science and you know other parts of, of life in the world. Um, so I think that that's that's kind of an, and and I think actually in a strange way I think that's been influenced by the internet and social networking and I think that people are are less conscious of and less bound by boundaries in a way um, because you can create a relationship with someone and even create art with someone across borders without going anywhere. Um, and so there is this increasing sense of borderlessness that I think is seeping into all kinds of organizations but definitely into theaters in the way that, that they think about themselves um, and their and their structures. Um, I think you know, there's just – there's an increasing diversity that exists all across our field uh, that, that really is, is different from when you know, those first resident theater companies were founded uh, and it's diversity of all kinds. It's an increasing diversity of organizational structure when you're talking about institutions, increasing diversity in in terms of the kinds of work that's being developed, um, diverse racial and ethnic diversity. Um, We see just, you know, since TCG was founded, there are a number of different organizations that are service organizations in effect that are dealing with particular kinds of Organization. So, for instance, there's the network of ensemble theaters now, which started as a subgroup of TCG, and then actually there became enough interest among ensemble theaters in having their own association that it became an independent association. So, and with a couple hundred members, Um, the Asian American Theater Association started. uh, Actually, it's an idea that came out of a TCG convening many years ago, and when that organization formed. So they're now the Asian American Theater Association and Festival. Um, the, the leaders of that say that when they formed it, suddenly there were companies and artists. They just weren't even hadn't been on their radar screen previously who now were coming forward and saying, I want to be part of this. So um, – and then what happens for TCG is that we become the sort of central connecting point for everyone, um, for all of the diversity of the field. But I think that that perspective and that reality of our field is shaping – the thinking of the generation that's coming in and will eventually be – either is or will be leading theaters into the future.
0: In the past year, there have been two signal points in terms of some criticism of what's happening with theater in America. and I'm referring specifically to the TDF book, Outrageous Fortune, which was based on a series of – meetings and surveys of playwrights and how they felt about the state of working in theater and today, and it was it was critical of mm-hmm. institutions, and somewhat ironically, a theater piece uh, by the monologist Mike Daisy, who entitled his piece, How Theater Failed America, with criticisms of how institutional theatres had affected uh, the creation of art. What is TCG's position or response to those, since TCG represents the theatres themselves, which were at the heart of what was being criticized?
1: Well, interesting you should mention Mike Daisy, because we, uh, we brought Mike and How Theater Failed America to our conference in Denver in 2008. Oh, how'd that go? And it was funny because people, when they hear the title of it, uh, were thinking, do we want to see Mike Daisy perform a play about – or a monologue about Theater Failing America? But it it sold out. I mean people – and then he ended up being hired – that being brought into theaters around the country to perform that particular monologue. Um, <laughs> Which uh, which I thought was really interesting and great. I mean, it's it's he's such a talented guy and has has so much to say. And I think that piece it got people talking and thinking about. And not everyone agrees with everything Mike says in in that monologue, of course, because you know I think the debate there is just um, you know it has to do with he he talks quite a bit about the investment in facilities versus people and and. Th- you know, the failure essentially of the service of institutions to embracing artists. And I think that is also the theme that comes through in in the TDF book, in Todd London's book, Outrageous Fortune. I think that uh, what we realize as we look at the evolution of the field is that TCG has essentially supported – um, both artists and institutions, but we've, the, this kind of professional development support and the research that we've done has been really focused more on institutions. So we have this, and, and you know, whether or not TCG existed, we have developed over time this, this incredible kind of infrastructure of theaters across the country that is supported, off, you know, sometimes struggling, but still supported and, and creating, you know, offering jobs. Next to the, the the institutional theater, we also we have more of a um, a freelance system that's developed for artists, and that's not to say that you know there aren't companies and there aren't ensembles. There are many ensembles that employ artists year round, but you know, and they tend to be smaller, um, but really dedicated to to their artists. But we you know we have to face the fact that there's largely a freelance system in place for theater artists. And so they don't have one particular home, one particular uh, place that is, you know, whether you're a playwright or an actor or a director um, producing your work or retaining you um, to do work on a consistent basis. And so that, I mean, I think that's a real issue that that needs to be focused on. And TCG is actually in the process of over the coming year, um, we are – doing a series of field conversations. Um, we actually have a few that will be done in New York and we're also in Los Angeles and Chicago. Um, and we've done some of these conversations by telephone so that artists who you know can't make it to one of those cities can actually participate in giving us their feedback on what their experience is as artists today working in the in theater in the United States. Um, and also what are the examples of relationships between organizations and artists that work and how can we replicate those because or you know how can we strengthen those kinds of relationships because we realize that for many artists for most artists it's again having a connection to a place is is important having a connection to an organization having a connection to a particular you know group of staff and there, some institutions have been more successful than others. I think there's an enormous amount within the uh, organizations, enormous amount of, of passion about the artists in the field and a desire to work more closely together and more effectively. Um, but there are also many, many, many success stories.
0: One of the great ironies of – Todd working on Outrageous Fortune is that Todd had written, I guess you would most properly call it a monograph for TCG back in the 80s called The Artistic Home, which focused on that idea of artists having a home, but it focused very much on the idea of the artistic directors having Mm -hmm. homes. And so that was the first challenge that was – really making the case and having a tool that came through TCG to argue for artistic directors really developing a body of work over time and not just being there to put on plays. Right, And then the issue is, okay, artistic directors can have homes. There's a desire and a need seemingly more now for all of the artists who want that – Kind of continuity, so it's 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 interesting just the way that is played out over yeah, time. Yeah, and
1: it may not be it may not be every artist, but I I think you know many 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 artists working in the theater would like that connection and that continuity. I, so that's one issue. The other is, um, and and you know sometimes we look back to the very beginnings of the resident theater movement was the intention to have full time acting companies, for instance. And I think in many cases that was the intention. Absolutely, and. In many cases, it didn't work. Most cases, and when it didn't work, it didn't work for different reasons. I mean, in some cases, it might have been economic. In some cases, it was because there is opportunity for actors in New York and in Los Angeles. You know, with Hollywood, um, that. If you are a resident company member somewhere, you know, in the middle of the country, for instance, it's more difficult to get into New York to audition or – so there were different forces at play I think that made it difficult for for companies to, to be maintained and sustained. But I think there is kind of a, a look today, not a look back but a look forward to is there a way to create some, some of that. That company feeling, <laughs> if you will, um, without necessarily having full time companies. And in some cities, interestingly, um, you know, there are cities like Chicago or like Minneapolis, um, you know, pro- Philadelphia may be an example of this, where there's a strong locally based artistic community that works, you know, individuals work in two, three, four different theaters in a season and they become almost like the resident company of the city,
0: (laughs) you know? Hmm. Well, there's that. There's also the idea of the exchange of information among theaters can be facilitated by having artists who work in multiple theaters. Right. So, so there's that opportunity. I want to go to even a broader part of the community that TCG is involved with and this harks back to your international relations degree, even though in The mission statement of TCG, it's about strengthening, nurturing, and promoting professional not-for-profit American theater. TCG has begun to do a lot in terms of interacting with theater organizations and linking theater companies in different countries. And I'm wondering about those efforts and what that yields –
1: When TCG – I'm going to harken back one more time. Keep harking. <laughs> it's fine.
0: <laughs> Hark away.
1: Because when, when – well, a couple of things. One, when TCG was founded and in, in those early years, it, it really helped that collection of theaters that existed across the country have a sense of themselves as being part of a movement. You know, We, we had and have a national theater movement. And I believe that that movement is, is becoming increasingly global. When the when Mac Lowry first, uh, who was at the Ford Foundation, um, talked about why he thought it was important to form TCG with a grant from Ford, he talked about the fact that it was in part to help combat provincialism. You know the provincialism that exists if if you're again, geographically isolated. And he included a new, new York in that, by the way, that you could become isolated in New York as well. And I think to some extent, um, isolationism is the new provincialism. We as a theater community have the possibility of becoming isolated from what's happening in the rest of the world, just as you know other parts of our national landscape can become very isolated. And it's not – you know part of that is because we are actually isolated. We're not you know the United states is is we're we're close to South America. we're close to Canada um,
0: yet, how many yet, even how, Canadian plays or certainly South American plays do we right. see on American stages
1: but So I think TCG has been involved in international, promoting international exchange for for a long time. It's not not a brand new activity for us. I think it's becoming significantly, we're expanding in that arena. And part of it is, we've been the U.S. Center for the International Theater Institute since 1999. Um, That organization was founded after World War II in order to help, you know, like during the Cold War and really trying to find ways of connecting nations and especially the US and USSR through theater and through the arts and and it was a UNESCO organization. Um, So we've been the center for ITI since 1999. But in recent years, we have just found that there it's the work that we do to promote cultural exchange and to promote relationships between theater artists in the U S and abroad is really aimed at, I mean, it's, it's aimed at helping our theater community because we still, we learn from each other. We learn new aesthetics. We learn new ways of, of producing, um, There are opportunities. There are opportunities for plays to be produced in other countries. (laughs) There are opportunities for theater companies uh, to tour or for uh, artists within those companies to be able to go and either perform in other places or give master classes in other parts of the world. Uh, We took a delegation of 27 theater people to – and primarily leaders of member theaters to the International Theater Festival in Bogota this year – And out of that, there are five or six new relationships that, you know, where there's exchange, there's potential of plays being developed, you know, between the two countries. You know, there are language issues, of course. We have to think about translations. We have to think about, um, you know, how we translate more U.S. plays into other languages and and vice versa. But I think that it's I think it's 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 important and. And I believe that there's just a dramatic increase in the number of, of theaters and theater artists who are interested in working with their, their compadres in other countries.
0: One of the things that strikes me because, of course, we've known each other, so I'm aware of, of what you do, is the amount of personal communicating you do on behalf of TCG For a long time, the executive director has always written a page-long essay in the front of American Theater Magazine. Mm -hmm. But now we see you tweeting. You're certainly going to conferences, um, certainly, I think, begun more by Ben Cameron than perhaps his predecessors. You also go out and speak Mm. to and with theaters. I'm curious both about what are the messages you want to bring to them, and what do you hear from them that you then want to share with other theaters?
1: When I visit theaters, oh, there's one thing is that I'm always I'm so inspired when I go out into the field and have a chance to meet with the artistic and managing directors, or you know, depending upon how they're structured, it may not be an artistic managing director structure, but and the trustees and the staffs, because and the audiences. There, because there's so much uh, – there's so much passion and so much dedication to excellence in our field. And uh, and it's it's also inspiring, particularly in these times that we find ourselves in, you know, it's – you could assume that there's gloom and doom everywhere or maybe – you know, our field has been very – has been entrepreneurial, has been very flexible in, in, during the economic downturn of the last several years. Um, and so – you know they're, They've maintained some strength in the midst of adversity, but it's just tremendously inspiring to see that it's not just – our theaters are not just hanging on. In, in most cases, they're, they're creating fantastic new work. They are interacting with their audiences in ways that are ever more innovative and, and collaborative.
0: So theaters are not playing it safe in what is so constantly referred to as these difficult times?
1: Playing it safe in what way? You mean artistically? Um, I, I, you know, I can't answer. I can't make a blanket statement answer oh, please. for that. Well, I don't. I think that I. I, would, say no. mm-hmm. I would say no. I would say no. I think that there are some artistic directors who have felt some pressure to, you know, in some cases to do a few less um, plays that might, you know, that might be Django perceived as risky. Yeah, yeah. It might be perceived as risky. But I, I, I think there's. Um, I think that theaters are really one of the things that they've learned from past downturns is that if, if you change your your mission in the process in order to try to survive, it comes back to haunt you later. In other words, the your our theaters audiences have come to expect certain kinds of work from them and certain you know expect a certain uh, you know level of production and and you know depending upon the theater it varies. Not every theater is the same. Um, and, and I think that, if anything, they're focusing in even more on what it is that they feel they're called to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that involves, in many cases, it involves new work. It involves risk-taking, depending upon the mission of the theater.
0: So, again, you've talked about little of what you're seeing out there. Are there messages – is there a direction that you have the opportunity to advocate for in theater, given, given your position?
1: I think it's definitely important for theaters to continue to invest in the work, to consider um, the level of risk-taking and innovation that they're investing in. Um, I think that the continual effort to work closely with and to engage their communities and their audiences – is is something that is it's important and it's an investment that will continue to pay off in years to come for theaters. I think it is important for um, for theaters to be thinking about the diversity of their communities. The fact that in the you know not so distant future, our country is becoming increasingly um, increasingly diverse and has an increasing number of of immigrant families. Here, so I think how how their communities are changing and looking to the future is something that that theaters need to be doing. I think paying attention to what's happening with the artists they work with is an important thing for theaters to to be doing. And you know, we talked about international, but I think that um, paying attention to what's happening outside of their immediate communities, um, looking at what's happening nationally in other theaters. Um, looking at what's happening internationally, and talking about the art. <laughs> um, I think that we we have, to some extent, because of the times that we're in, um, It's we get focused sometimes very much on the, the practical and the financial because theaters feel that they need to. I mean, they need to to, to survive. Um, but there's also – it's important to spend time really looking at and discussing and thinking about – the art itself and how we advance the art form itself.
0: As we talk about the idea of a national theater, and there are those who periodically say, you know, America doesn't have a national theater in the way that England has a national theater, but America has a series of theaters, which right. I think you and I would agree are our national theater. That's the right. country is That's simply right. too big to have a singular institution represent anything mm-hmm. more than the location that it's in. What is also challenging is that as the media has changed, the ability to make people aware of what is happening elsewhere in the country, in theater, mm-hmm. seems seems to be a problem. And that even if all of this work is burgeoning, it's getting harder and harder to let people know about it. Is that something in terms of what's happened with the change in the media, the diminishment of the role of the critic or feature writer, for that matter, about theater? Is is that something that TCG in any way is trying to address?
1: We are, and we've actually – we've had some convenings of, of theater writers and artistic directors together to really talk about – you know, where theater coverage is going, Um, where is it going? And, And how's that going to impact the work? And how's it going to impact the audience? And I think that just in the last less than two years, so much has changed already. And, you know, in the last, certainly in the last five years, it's a completely new world. And I think that you know, we do want to encourage continued conversations in, in whatever ways we can, whether it's through our convenings, whether it's through the magazine, um, between theater makers, theater writers, and, and also to recognize, to help theaters understand we've, how best to use the social media tools that are available because I think that's uh, critical. In fact, I think that for you, you know, you mentioned getting the word out and and really sort of communicating what's happening, uh, the the kind of burgeoning of theater. How do people know about that? Um, the New York Times covers New York theater pretty extensively, and we would love to see some maybe a couple times a year coverage of what's happening across the nation, not just necessarily one theater, but maybe a number of theaters. And, of course, the Times has many, many – has, you know, great readership and and it's a way that people learn about what's happening, just like the Wall Street Journal and what Terry's teach-out's been doing in terms of going out regionally. I think that's uh, very helpful in terms of awareness building. But I think the fact that so many people who attend theater now and and, you know, can actually opine about what they've seen – is a very healthy development. I mean I think I don't know if you've ever if you've looked at what's being discussed in Twitter, for instance. And I know that Twitter's reach is not anything like at this particular moment Facebook or you know some other media outlets, for instance. But you know, there's just tremendous amount of discussion about theater. I mean Shakespeare is everywhere in Twitter. And
0: <laughs> well again, Twitter's fascinating. We're both on it. Um, There's a certain amount of self-selection because you decide whose messages you want to see. Right. So you have to make that choice and become aware. It is interesting when you have – there's a group that calls itself 2AMT, 2AM Theater, which truly is often late-night discussions about issues in theater um, with people who are geographically diverse as if – They were all people who worked at the same theater and went out for a drink afterwards. So, yes, there are those – there's certainly those opportunities, how they relate to what's happened in the mass media, which can affect so many more people at once. I always used to say – I've been saying for a long time, there is a myth of national press coverage because outside of Terry Teachout, who you cited, there's really no other outlet – that goes beyond its immediate area on a consistent basis. That's right. Um, to cover it, so it's always local coverage, and the Times may go out to Chicago to see a show, may go out to Minneapolis to see a show. Here and there, it is still a New York paper, right. um, and its its focus is there. So, the you know, obviously, whether there's opportunity for TCG to build those forums um, so that more people get involved in the discussion yeah. of theater. and we is, would like to do that. Yeah.
1: We would like to do that because I think uh, with all of the social media tools that exist, we're definitely seeing an increase in the conversation, an increase in the awareness. Um, you know, I learn about things. I learn about shows or artists who are working I didn't know about before. Uh, I feel like we, we're lucky. We live in a really exciting time in that respect. But who's actually looking at those blogs or those tweets. or That's the question. Are we talking to ourselves? Or, (laughs) you know, is there an audience um, that is at a point really, you know, are we able to harness all of that energy and that discussion in such a way that it's informing a wider public and getting them excited about and participating in in the theater, in the actual event? Um, And most of the theaters we hear from I, I, you know, the theater community was very fast in adopting all the social media that exists today. You know, Facebook, we were right there. <laughs> theater community was right there. As soon as it opened, it became open to to the wider public and not just to students. Um, same thing with Twitter and – Twitter, what a name. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Do you feel silly saying it? <laughs> I'm there. Um, but – you know, it, it it was adopted very quickly, and I think it is. Um, it's it's just a very. I think that our theaters are telling us that the way that they're using it with their specific audiences is helping them. You know, early in the economic crisis that really you know hit in two thousand eight. There were a couple theaters that were in emergency situations, and it wasn't just because of the economy. It was, you know, there were some other forces at play. And they really successfully used social media, such as Facebook, um, to raise awareness and to raise money. Now, you can't do that, you know, effectively year after year after year with 500 theaters in terms of, you know, we're having an emergency and we need your help. But um, they've been able to. Generate discussion about the work, um, raise awareness, and and I think we haven't done a study on this yet in terms of the new audiences that are being brought in. But anecdotally, um, theaters are able to engage new audiences through through these tools. But it doesn't. I don't know if we can say that it replaces entirely or ever could. That's the question. I don't think anybody the mass, knows the answer yeah, to that yet. We don't and know.
0: ultimately. While we may have been relatively early adopters of Facebook and Twitter and the like, the arts have a tendency to lag behind technological innovations because they simply can't afford to jump on the bandwagon right away. Social media, because the actual cost of the tool is essentially free, if not entirely free – they could get involved with more quickly, whereas it certainly was stadiums that went to computerized ticketing before theaters did. Let me jump to a couple of other topics that I want to make sure we talk about. Um, One, very factual and practical. TCG um, gave support in a uh, court case regarding – whether the smoking on stage during a performance was in fact a First Amendment issue, because in Colorado laws were passed which prohibited smoking in public places, and as a result, um, people could not stage plays which had characters smoking. Um, can you tell me what the state of that is now, and whether whether there's it, it's an argument that's going to continue to be pursued?
1: Uh, we were very, very fortunate to have a First Amendment attorney by the name of Bruce Johnson, who's uh, on the board of the Seattle Repertory Theater, take an interest in the the case in Colorado, the, <clears throat> the fact that there was no exemption for theatrical smoking in the smoking ban in Colorado. So the Curious Theater Company um, was having some issues with this because they had plays that really did require live cigarettes. Or herbal cigarettes. The exemption didn't even allow for herbal cigarettes, and uh, and and Bruce Johnson wrote an Amicus brief, a beautiful piece of work, um, that. Really de- uh, defended the fact that um, that that it or, or made the case that it's a First Amendment issue. It went through, uh, eventually made its way to the Supreme Court actually, but was not heard by the Supreme Court. It was not, you know, they choose among many different cases, right. and and it wasn't. So at this point, um, it's it's become an issue actually in in New York again as well. So we've had to testify at City Council just to talk about. Uh, theatrical smoking and and different impacts if, if different kinds of bans are in place, but uh, for the moment that particular um, that particular case is is laying low. It's not you know it went to Supreme Court. It's not being heard, um, but it's the issue is still out there, and so we're monitoring it and we're trying to be helpful as we can, and it may come back.
0: But it's an interesting example of where a national organization can help. A small company, Curious is is not a huge theater company, um, but on behalf of all of the artists and all right. of the theaters, take a position. A very key thing that uh, TCG has done for a long time is collect data about the facts and figures of what's going on in American theater and annually publishes the, the Theater Facts Report mm-hmm. in the magazine um that is how individuals, organizations, the media get a sense of the trends of mm-hmm. what's going on. Can you, as we have to wrap up, give us a sense of what are the numbers telling us right now about what's happening in theater?
1: There uh Depending upon which numbers we look at, um, I, I you know one of the numbers that we we track and that there's always great interest in is audience numbers. And in our survey, what we can tell is that there are over thirty million people attending nonprofit professional theater every year. That to me, if I think about the fact that we collect that data just based on, again, the nonprofit professional theaters, if you consider the fact that, uh, there's also commercial theater, Broadway and The Road. There are community theaters that don't fall within either of those categories. Um, and and there's university theater. I think that the attendance in theater is actually quite strong. Um, we have noticed that every year there's maybe an uptick of 1% or we lose 1% or we gain 1%, but we're staying pretty steady in terms of the overall audience numbers. Um, in terms of financial tracking, and really, this is the research, the primary research that we do now. We have a fiscal survey that we do every year. It's been done for 36 years, so we can really look back. And in terms of the, the fiscal health of the field, I think um, you know, it's been some tough years, tough, tough years for the theater field. And I would say that Fiscal two thousand and nine, which was the last survey we did, really showed um, the sort of the weakest point in the last five years and in part what that means is that um, a lot of the theaters the theaters that do have endowments saw their endowments go down dramatically because of the what, ha- what was happening in the markets um, cash flow and capitalization working capital are real concerns in the field and that 's something you know when you think about in a way. <laughs> Cash is uh, – its, it's m- most theaters at some time or the other struggle a bit with cash flow and I think that, you know, it, it gets in the way of them being able to invest in certain things. Um, last – fiscal 2009 was a particularly tough year. Um, and but, but, you know, for funders – and one of my hopes is that one day – you know, you think about the Bill Gates Philanthropy Initiative and the fact that there are – Billionaires who have said we're going to invest, you know, a certain amount of our wealth in uh, in charity, and I think that actually to really stabilize the theater field in the United States or to provide the kind of uh, working capital that would make it possible to truly invest in that programming, which is having a positive effect in communities, it's, it probably would not take, in the grand scheme of things, that much money. <laughs> um, but you know the. So so, I guess the the short answer is that it's it's tough overall financially, but the theaters are by and large our field is is hanging on and and as I mentioned earlier in this conversation, really being as entrepreneurial and inventive as they can um other numbers you're interested in
0: no i think I think that's good let's let's end with with a real up question you're Three years in, in the position, you've had the opportunity to get around the country and even around the world and see theater. What's the most fun you've had since coming to TCG?
1: Oh, I just – I have – the most fun is, well, I, I love uh, visiting with theater professionals who are in the field who come to – I mean, it's either going out and visiting our theaters or um, – you know, Having theaters come to our office, we have a ball. We have a barrel of fun at TCG when an artistic director either based – or a managing director or an artist based in New York or around the country comes in and sits and just talks to us and tells us what they're doing. It's, it's so much fun. I do love traveling um, <laughs> as well, but we love having, uh, having people come to see us and, and just talk about the work, talk about what they're doing, talk about their challenges, but also the opportunities that they, they have. Well, Being a Tony nominator was fun, too. <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten to do that if I hadn't come to New York and uh, to run TCG.
0: Well, but it wasn't part of the job. No. Before I say goodbye, I promised, and I think it's important, we've talked a lot about issues and themes. But for people who are interested in more learning more about the work of TCG, possibly the simplest um, URL to remember – TCG.org would tell people much more about right. the programs and the work that you've done. So I recommend it to people who've found this conversation interesting. And in the meantime, Teresa Iring, thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Tim Whitney. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online on demand for free from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter, at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter, as H.E. Sherman. You can also follow our guest today, Teresa Eyring, on Twitter, at simply (laughs) Teresa Eyring, and also TCG on Twitter, at TCG. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook, at The American Theatre Wing, and also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or reviewer of Wing Programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.